Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Set Free. Well, last week, if you were with us, you and I, we witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And so as the Lord rode down the western slope of the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey, you remember the thousands of people in the Kidron Valley went absolutely crazy. And some people took off their outer garments and they laid them down in the road before the Lord as the Lord was and the donkey were going over those garments. Others went and cut down leafy branches. John tells us they were palm tree branches and they laid those branches down before the Lord. Some people were, were shouting, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Other people were shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, everybody seemed to be really happy except for one group. That group was the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, we've covered this early in the Gospel of Mark, but by way of review, who were the Sanhedrin? Or what was the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the high court of Israel made up of 70 men plus the high priest comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so these were the political and religious leaders of Israel in the days of Jesus in the first century. And when they saw the Lord coming down the mountain and when they saw the people going crazy, they seethed with anger. You see, months earlier, these guys, these religious leaders, they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they had spread the word from Jerusalem to Judea to Galilee to the Jewish people. Do not follow this man. He is a false Messiah. And as you make your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the low blows that these religious leaders gave to our Lord. It says in John 8, 41, that the religious leaders uh, said that, that Jesus was, quote, born of fornication. In other words, these guys, they said that Mary got pregnant by sleeping with Joseph or sleeping with somebody else before she got married to Joseph, and that's how she got pregnant with Jesus. You're born of fornication. In John 8, 48, they called Jesus a Samaritan. And if you know anything about New Testament Gospels, you know that is a term of derision. They said, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. In Mark 3.22, they said to Jesus that, that you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub or the power of Satan. And so now on that first Palm Sunday, as they see the Lord coming down the mountain, as they see the people going crazy, it says in John 12, 19, that these religious leaders looked at one another and said, look, the whole world has gone after him. And so all their attempts in the past three years or so to discredit the Lord, all their attempts to drag his good name through the mud, all their attempts to try to get people to stop uh, following Jesus as the Messiah. It seemed on this first Palm Sunday that their attempts to discredit the Lord had failed. But you need to know the religious leaders will not give up. How many of you guys know that people who have evil agendas just don't give up? And so for now, they're just gonna bide their time and they're gonna wait for the right moment later in the week to arrest this man whom they considered to be a false messiah. What you need to know to really understand our Bible study today is that in the days of Jesus, Israel was being led by spiritually blind, self-righteous, hypocritical, jealous, empty religionists. These guys didn't know God. Maybe a couple, few of them on the Sanhedrin did, but by and large, they were spiritually blind, and what's sad is that many people in the nation of Israel followed in their footsteps, right? We saw this last week. On Sunday, the, the, the crowd there, and remember there was two people, two groups in the crowd, 
uh, one small group were authentic followers of Jesus that would stay true to him, but the much larger group, that was just the fickle crowd that was infatuated with Jesus. How many of you guys know you can be infatuated with Jesus and never be born again? And so the crowd on Sunday, they're, 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 they're praising, they're lauding Jesus. But by the end of the week, when this crowd finds out, figures out that he's not all about their agenda, when this crowd later in the week finds out that, that Jesus is not going to free them from the Roman Empire, that he's not going to fulfill their political aspirations and lift Israel back to a place of prominence, when they figure that out, their cries on Sunday of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, turn on Friday to crucify him, crucify him. And so it's so sad today when people find out that, that God is not about our agenda, he's about his agenda, that they stop following the Lord. I just wanna encourage you about something. There's lots of good things in the world that you and I can get passionate about. There's lots of good things in the world that you and I can you know, uh, say, we wanna do that. And I just wanna warn you here that don't allow yourself to just start doing something that's good and start to pursue something with passion that's quote unquote good unless you really know that God's leading you to, to, to do that. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, with all due respect, it's not about your agenda, it's about his agenda. And so what so many people do, and Christians do this, they start to do something that they think is good and then halfway through they're like, Lord, can you please bless this? Can you please bless this, what I've chosen to do? And as, as time goes on, Everything blows up and gets messy, and now you're asking the Lord to bless your mess. And you never would have gotten in the mess in the first place if you would have gotten down on your knees and said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. What's your will for my life? What do you want me to do? You see, it's not about us choosing to do what we want to do and asking God to bless it. It's about us finding out what God wants us to do and then joining God in his work. And when you do that, you find the anointing and the power of God is all over you and all over what he's called you to do. Do you guys see the difference? If you see the difference, say amen. amen. Okay, and so this crowd, they find out he's not about our agenda and so they turn against the Lord. And in our passage today, in our Bible study today, Jesus is gonna do two significant things in order to show how he felt concerning the spiritual condition of Israel. All right, so that's the summary. Okay, so, so where are we going in our Bible study today? What's the summary? The summary is simply this, that Jesus wanted to show how he felt about the spiritual condition of Israel, and so number one, he cursed a fig tree, and number two, he cleansed the temple. So he's gonna curse a fig tree in Mark 11, and then he's going to cleanse the temple. Now, before we study these two events, I've gotta say something really, really important. And so what you gotta understand, especially in our day and age where anti-Semitism once again is on the rise, have you noticed? What you gotta understand is that even though in Jesus' day, the whole nation of Israel, the, 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 the nation of Israel as a whole, even though they are about to reject their Messiah as a nation, you still need to know that in the first century, listen, there were thousands of Jews who fell in love with the Lord and decided to follow him. And when these individual Jews, thousands of them, when they decided that it's not about my agenda, it's about his agenda, it's not about my will, but it's about his will, and when they stopped going in their own direction and they turned around and they started to authentically follow Yeshua, Jesus, do you know what he did in their lives? Title of the message, he set them free. He absolutely changed their lives. He absolutely rocked their world. Jesus said in John chapter eight, if the son sets you free, you will be what? Help me out. Free indeed. You want to be free this afternoon? Maybe some of you are here today and nobody else knows, but you know you're all bound up in some kind of sin. Satan 
or his demons, whatever, they have you all bound up and under the control or under the power of some type of sin. And what you've got to understand this afternoon is that Satan, sin, and death have been defeated at the cross. They don't have any power over you if you are a child of God. If the Son sets you free, you're gonna be free indeed. And so the Lord wants to set us free. He wants to set us free from hurts and habits and hangups. He wants to set us free from alcohol and drug abuse where that's not controlling your life. He wants to set us free from pornography and sex addiction. He wants to set us free from bitterness and unforgiveness that we have in our hearts towards people who have hurt and offended us. He wants to set us free from legalism and man-made rules. He wants to set us free from any kind of sin that will chain us up. Because how many of you guys understand and know that when the sun sets you free, the chains break, they fall down, and we can walk in newness of life? Not because we're so good, but because he's so good. Not because we're so powerful, but because he has the power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Check out John 8, 31 and 32. Okay, so we need to turn to Christ, but here's something else we need to do. Notice, first of all, Jesus said to the who? You see that? So there was thousands of Jews in the first century who fell in love with him and followed him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, okay, say the word if. That's a big if. If you, everybody look at me, abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Let me just stop you right there. Okay, so what's the opposite of that statement? The opposite of that statement is that if you, everybody look at me, if you don't abide in my word, then you are not truly my disciples. You see that? You might be a believer. He's talking to Jews who had believed in him. You might be a believer, but if you don't abide in his word, hey, don't fool yourself. You're not a disciple. You're not a follower of Jesus. But if you do abide in my word, he says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will, last three words, what? Set you free. And so if you wanna be set free, the first thing you need to do is figure out it's not about my agenda, it's about his agenda. You need to stop, stop going your own way and start following Jesus. And the way you follow Jesus is you abide in his word. Every single day you read it and heat it, okay? Don't just read it and then put it away. Don't just have your devotions and forget about it. No, 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 no. Read it and then say, Lord, how can I apply this to my life today? And when you abide in, the, in, in God's word, day after day after day after day, listen to this, the spirit of God takes the word of God and he begins to sanctify you, set you apart. He begins to set you free. All of a sudden you find out you've got this supernatural power and you don't have to have that beer. You don't have to smoke that joint. You don't have to look at pornography. You don't have to uh, give in to your sex addiction. You don't have to continue to harbor that anger and that bitterness against the brother or sister who offended you. You now have the same power residing in you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And you can say no to Satan, sin, and death and you can say yes to the Lord and you can walk in newness of life. You can because you're a child of God. But it's an if. Everybody say if. If. If you abide in his word. So many times there's counseling sessions and and the counselor, the Christian counselor will ask the counselee, how's your relationship with the Lord? When's the last time you read the Bible? 90% of the time, uh, I'm not really into the Bible. Then you're not his disciple. He sets his disciples free. And not only does does he do that, he prospers his disciples. Listen to the word of God, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman 
who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law, he meditates. She meditates day and night. Now what happens when you meditate day and night in God's word? The rest of Psalm 1 says this, and he or she will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf also does not wither. And whatever he or she does, promise of God, shall prosper. There's your true prosperity gospel right there in Psalm 1, 1 through 3. That sounds like freedom to me. And so again, just take your own self-assessment. You know your heart. The only one who knows your heart better than you is God. Be honest, be legit before the Lord. Does anything have you chained up? Well, it's time to make a decision to go from being a believer to a disciple, and it's time to start abiding in his word. And if you do that, it's an if, then you will be set free, amen? amen. All right, long introduction, but we're gonna dig into verse 12 now, and we're gonna see the two significant things that Jesus did in order to show his feelings about the spiritual condition of Israel in the first century. It says in verse 12, on the following day, this is the day after that first Palm Sunday, when they came from Bethany, that's a little village up on the Mount of Olives, it says that he was hungry. He was fully man, yet fully God. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, everybody look at me real quick. Let me just say something. Yes, it's not the season for figs yet. That would come later in the summer. Right now, we're late March, early April in your Bible. It's Passover week. And so even though it was not yet the season for figs, in the springtime, where we are in our Bibles, there's still should have been some indication of fruit on this fig tree. There still should have been some really small, immature yet edible figs on this fig tree. And because Jesus didn't find any fruit in the spring, guaranteed there would not be any fruit in the summer. Does that make sense to you guys? And so based upon that, verse 14, and he said to it, okay, so Jesus is talking to a tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, let's find out what happens to the fig tree. Take a quick peek at verse 20. Next day, as they passed by the fig tree in the morning, they saw the fig tree, look, look at this, withered away to its roots. At one point, it's a fig tree with a bunch of leaves. 24 hours later, the thing is dead. Now, did Jesus have something against fig trees? <laughs> no, he liked figs. That's why he went to this tree. He was hungry. He wanted some breakfast. As I was studying this week, I found out that I have something in common with the Lord. I like figs too. Fig Newtons. <laughs> They're really good. But here's the problem. Two of them have 110 calories. Two little cookies, two little swallow, swallow, 110 calories, and so you just gotta say no. <laughs> say no to figs. Okay, so let's, go, let's, 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 let's get back to the Bible here. What's going on, okay, in the Old Testament, you need to know that a fig tree was a type of Israel. Okay, and so I'll give you two examples. Hosea 9.10. God says, Let grapes, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like first fruit on a fig tree, I saw your fathers. Equating Israel with the fig tree. Joel 1, 6 and 7, God says, A nation has come against my land, the promised land, and splintered my fig tree. Equating Israel with the fig tree, okay? And so 
first century AD, Jesus walks up to a fig tree. He's hungry. He's looking for some fruit. He can't find any fruit. All he can find are leaves. And so what does he do? He curses the fig tree and the thing withers. What does this symbolize? Jesus Christ, God incarnate, lands on planet Earth. He goes to Israel. He's looking for fruit, even maybe a little bit of fruit, but he finds nothing but leaves. Leaves, symbolizing dead, empty, lifeless religion. And so he says in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the thing withers. Now the cursing of the fig tree reminds me of the parable of the fig tree. All right, so I asked you to um, mark Luke 13. So hold your place in, I'm sorry, uh, hold your place in Mark 11 and go to Luke 13, please. Turn right, one book, to Luke chapter 13. And we're gonna shed some more light on this whole topic. So Luke 13, starting in verse six. It says that he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now that's kind of odd right, right off the bat. You know, what's a fig tree doing in a, a vineyard? But nonetheless, he came seeking fruit on it. And how much fruit did he, did he find? What does it say? He found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for how many years? Three years. By the way, how long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. Interesting, isn't it? Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser said to the owner in verse 8, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, so what in the world does this parable of the fig tree mean? Here's what it means. It means that God planted Israel, symbolized by the fig tree. And he planted Israel in the world, which is symbolized in this parable, by the vineyard. And just like a fig tree would stand out in the vineyard, so Israel in Old Testament times stood out among the nations of the world. Out of all the families of the earth, God in his sovereign grace chose Abraham. He revealed himself to Abraham. And he chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his special chosen people. All right, so Israel, they worshiped the true God, Yahweh. The pagan nations worshiped false gods. Israel had Torah. The pagan nations had superstitious beliefs. Israel uh, was given the promised land, but pagan nations were driven from the promised land. I'm, I'm just kind of giving you the, the brief history of the Old Testament here. And so what you need to know is that God chose Israel and Israel started off so well. I mean, how much better can you do than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Joseph? I mean, have you ever studied the life of Joseph? See if you can find this week one sin in this guy's life in the second half of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, how much better can you get than Moses? the meekest man who ever walked the earth outside of Jesus. How much better can you get than David? Even though he had his failings, he was a man after God's own heart. But what you need to know is that what started off so good ended badly. Because by the first century AD, Judaism had deteriorated into a, this complex system of man-made rules and regulations. By the first century AD, Judaism becomes leaves, empty, dead religion. And the Messiah comes in the first century AD and he's looking for fruit in Israel. How many years was he looking for fruit? Help me out. Three years. 
He's looking for fruit in Israel and he can't find any. And so he says, cut it down. And how many of you guys know that the Lord who gave can take away? And yet the vine dresser says in verse eight, he answered the owner, look at it again, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. Okay, so what does this mean? This means that the fig tree would be given some more time. This fig tree would be given more time to come alive and to bear fruit. In other words, God in his grace would keep giving Israel second, third, fourth, fifth chances. And so what else did the Lord do? Two very significant things. Number one, he died for them on a cross. Number two, he rose again from the grave. Number three, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit filled up these Jewish apostles and disciples, and they gave powerful witness to the Jewish nation of Israel. And yet, as you read through Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but now you're reading through Acts, hey, owner, just give it one more year. See if it bears fruit. I'll put some manure around it, and then if it doesn't bear fruit, we'll chop it down. You read Acts, and even after the powerful witness of these Jewish disciples of Jesus risen from the dead, the nation of Israel still rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And the fruit that God desired from Israel never came. It never came uh, during Jesus' life. It never came after his resurrection. And God did everything he could do. How many of you guys believe that God's a merciful God? Right? He just keeps giving second, third, fourth, fifth chances. And some of you know that from personal experience. And thank God for his mercy. And thank God for his love. But Israel as a nation hardened their hearts. And so the Lord said, cut down the fig tree. And what do we find? We find in AD 70, we talked about this last week, the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem, ransacks the city, rapes the women, slaughters Jews by the thousands, burns down the temple, and the Jews are scattered all over the world. And not only that, by AD 130 to 135, the Jews rebel again against the Roman Empire. And this time, the Emperor Hadrian moves in. Over 500,000 Jews slaughtered. And the Emperor Hadrian, the Roman Empire, says, no longer will we call this land Judea. No longer will we call this land Israel. Now we will call this land Palestine. What did he do? He Latinized the word of Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. Don't say Israel. Don't say Judea. Say Palestine. And Jews, it was illegal for Jews to even enter into Jerusalem. And by the way, quick side note, um, you and I as Christians, um, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we never say Palestine we refer to Israel as Israel. And personally, I thank God for a president who had enough guts to put the embassy in the capital of Israel, which is Jerusalem. Thank God for that. But nonetheless, the Jews were scattered all across the face of the earth. Now, how many of you guys honestly believe that God is finished with Israel? Do you believe that? No. You know what breaks my heart? is there's pastors like me and platforms like this all around the country, and they're telling their, their church families God's done with Israel, and the church has replaced Israel. And, and they're not getting the full view. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we have to make sure we take the whole counsel of God before we make any statements like that. What's the whole counsel of God? The whole counsel of God is when you read Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, you find out that the Abrahamic covenant the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, listen, it's unconditional and it's eternal. What does that mean? That means that even though Jesus in the first century looked at the fig tree and said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, what he was talking about was 
the Israel of his day, which was being led by self-righteous, spiritually blind Sanhedrin people. But you need to know that God is not done with Israel. For 1,800 years, they were outside of their land, scattered all around the world. But who knows what happened in 1948? Never happened in history. The Jews came back to their land, and the nation of Israel was declared once again to be a sovereign nation. And now, and that, that was in fulfillment of prophecy, and now the stage has been set for the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we get to Mark 13, if we ever get there, but if we get to Mark 13, we're going to study the tribulation, and we're going to see that God begins to work with the Jews and with Israel once again, and that the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, will come back and rescue his people. And Romans 11:26 says, all Israel will be saved. Isn't God awesome? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he merciful? Isn't he amazing? What a great God we serve. Okay, so let's apply this to our lives. Just as Jesus came to Israel looking for fruit, so he comes to us looking for fruit as well. Hey, don't think we're off the hook. Just like he came to Israel in the first century AD looking for fruit and all he could find was a bunch of leaves, he comes to the church today, to this room, to all of us as individuals, and he's looking for fruit. And the question I have, is he gonna find any fruit in your life or is he just gonna find leaves? If you consider yourself a Christian, just raise your hand right now, please. All right, you can put your hands down. Don't answer this out loud. Answer it in your heart. What evidence do you have to authenticate a raised hand? You see, if a fig tree says, I'm a fig tree, but doesn't bear any figs, it's not a fig tree. And if a Christian says, I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit in their lives, then what does that mean? That means that they're not really a Christian. Well, my mom and dad went to church. Yeah, what about you? Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Now, what's the key to bearing fruit? It says in John 15, five, Jesus said this. Everybody, please look at me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. And so if we're really attached to Jesus, if we're really abiding in Jesus, then we're gonna bear spiritual fruit. And what does that look like biblically? Well, according to Romans 6.22, we're gonna have a holy life. Not a perfect life, but a holy life. According to Colossians 1.10, good works are gonna be flowing from our life if we really are who we say we are. Hebrews 13, 15, it's the fruit of praise to God. In other words, you love worshiping the Lord. And not only that, but Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it's the fruit of character. Many of you know that passage, but once again, look at me. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're just a branch. But if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? Galatians 5, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Why? Because just like sap in the vine of a tree goes into a branch, causing there to be fruit, so the life of Jesus Christ flows into us. And under the new covenant, the life of the Holy Spirit causes us to bear fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to church, please don't misunderstand me. You don't do these things to be saved. You do these things because you are saved. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You should be bearing fruit unless you're just professing something with your mouth or maybe wearing a cross around your neck. But your life Monday through Saturday is something totally opposite 
of what that cross around your neck represents. And so, man, if you abide in Christ, if you're really abiding in Christ, you're going to bear fruit. And so Jesus curses a fig tree. That's a big statement about how he felt concerning the spiritual condition of Israel in the first century. But here comes the second significant thing that he does. And that's, and that's in verse 15. Okay, so look at verse 15. It says, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So all these merchants selling their merchandise, Jesus starts to drive them out. In other words, he's not a happy camper here in verse 15. It says that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. If you're poor, you could, can't afford an animal sacrifice, you buy a pigeon, according to Leviticus 5.7. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so here Jesus uh, performs his second significant act, showing how he felt concerning the spiritual condition of Israel. He enters into the temple. Now the temple was big, it was beautiful, it was absolutely breathtaking. Okay, this is just a model of the Temple Mount and the Jewish temple in that day. And so what you need to know, if you see the large building in the middle, say amen. Okay, so within that building is the holy place and the holy of holies behind the curtain where the presence of God dwelt. Just outside of that tall building was three courts the court of women, the court of Israel, and the court of the priests. But outside that center enclosure on the two massive courts, that was considered the court of the Gentiles. Okay, and so the entire temple mount, that square that you see there, that's about 29 American football fields. It's ginormous. So what did Herod do? On the back of thousands of slaves and slave labor, he went to Mount Moriah and he cut off the top of the mountain and leveled it off and he put four big retaining walls called the Temple Mount. Of course, today, the Jewish temple no longer resides there. Today, if you go to Israel, you'll see the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims built it in 691 AD. But you need to know that the retaining walls, the four retaining walls are still there. And right now, I'm standing in the east, and I'm looking west. And you need to know that the back retaining wall is called the western wall, or the wailing wall, that's still there today. The very giant boulder stones that Herod in the first century put in place are still there today. How many of you guys have seen the Jews, the Hasidic Jews, praying at the wailing wall? It's there. And so look at the court of the Gentiles. Thousands of Jews and Gentiles could easily fit on that giant court. And they would go there to seek the Lord. They would go there to pray. And so that's what was supposed to be going on on the court of the Gentiles. It was supposed to be a holy place where Gentile seekers could rub shoulders with Jews and hear about Yahweh, the one and only true God. But instead of prayer and evangelism taking place, something else was taking place. When Jesus walks up here in Mark 11, what he sees is not evangelism and not prayer. What he sees is a giant marketplace. And so I want you to imagine on the court of the Gentiles, imagine money changing tables and merchandise and just all kind of, of merchants making money. And, and the Lord, when he sees this, is not very happy. It was called, this big marketplace, the Bazaar of Annas. Okay, so who was Annas? Annas was the high priest of Israel until he was replaced by Caiaphas. 
But the old man, Annas, decided, I'm going to be active in my retirement, and I'm going to oversee this marketplace on the court of Gentiles. And so what he did in his retirement years is he became rich. Annas was a millionaire in terms of today. He became rich through this lucrative business, but it was dishonest. They were cheating the people of God. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite commentators, said the court of the Gentiles should have been a place for praying, but instead of that, it was a place for praying and paying. And so the scam on the Temple Mount had at least two layers. The first layer had to do with animal sacrifices. The second layer had to do with the temple tax. Okay, and so what week is it? I'm gonna see if you guys have been listening. What week are we in? What, what Jewish feast? Passover. And so there's Jewish pilgrims by the thousands coming into Jerusalem, not to mention all these Gentiles who are seeking the Lord, like the Ethiopian eunuch. And they're coming, and they have to sacrifice a lamb for Passover dinner for their family. According to Exodus 12, 5, it's got to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so what they do is they take their lamb to the priest on the temple mount, and the priest inspects it to make sure it has no blemishes so that it can be sacrificed so they can have their Passover meal. And so maybe it wants something like this. Here, priest, look at my lamb. And the priest says, uh-oh, I see a blemish. And you're like, where? I don't see a blemish. Oh, right there, this lamb won't do. But today's your lucky day. Because right over here, we have a bunch of spotless lambs on sale. And you guessed it, these lambs were astronomical in price. And who was pocketing the profits? Annas and his associates, getting rich off the backs of the people of God. Not only that, the temple tax. Every year, the Jews had to pay a temple tax. Many of them did it at Passover. And so they're coming from all over the world. All they have in their pockets are Greek coins and Roman coins, but you're not allowed to use foreign currency in a Jewish temple. You gotta use shekels. So they have these money changing tables. And if you're there, you take your Roman coin and you exchange it into a Jewish shekel, but you guessed it. The exchange rate fee was grossly inflated and guess who was pocketing the profits? Annas and his associates. And you think about what a turnoff this was. To Gentile visitors, they expected a holy place with holy people, and what they see is dishonesty and corruption. And the Lord comes into the scene, and he's mad. His veins are bulging, his eyes are blazing, his fists you know, are clenched, and all. next thing you know, tables are being overturned, and coins are scattering, and merchants are running for their lives because no one wants to take on Jesus. And by the way, that was righteous anger. There's nothing wrong with being angry. The Bible says be angry and what? Sin not. And so he's mad. He says in verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to do what to him? You see that? That's what happens when you mess with a man's prophet. But they couldn't because they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay, so this is still early in the week before the crowd turns on Jesus. So verse 19, it says, when evening came, they went out of the city. And so the religious leaders, they're thinking, man, if we arrest him right now publicly, we're gonna cause a riot. And so what do they do? They bide their time till later in the week when they can use a man named Judas in order to apprehend the Lord Jesus. Verse 20, back to Jesus and his disciples. They passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And so Jesus, he's the master of illustrations. He's the master of using object lessons. 
And so he thinks, I'm gonna use this miracle of the withered fig tree to teach a truth right here. So if you're looking at verse 22, say amen. Okay, check it out. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Can we say those four words together? Go ahead. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And so, what does Jesus do? He uses the withered tree, that was a miracle that that even happened, and he turns it into a, a, a lesson about mountains. And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, here, here we are, we're applying it now. The Lord still moves mountains today. Now, was Jesus speaking about literal mountains? You know, was he saying to his disciples, hey, look, you see the Mount, the, the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley? Man, if you have faith, you can say to that mountain, be moved, and that mountain's gonna go up into space, fly 20 miles, and be cast into the Dead Sea. You think that's the kind of power that he's talking about? No, what good would that do? Okay, and so the, the, the phrase to move mountains is a metaphor in that day to solve difficult problems. Do you see that? Okay, and so maybe you're here today and you have a mountain of a problem in your life. Maybe you have this problem that's so huge you don't know what to do. All right, here's an idea. Why don't you go to the one who can move mountains? Why don't you intervene, ask him to intervene? Jesus said in verse 22, have faith in God. What does the word faith mean? The word faith means trust, confidence, reliance upon. And so right now in your life, if you're faced with a mountain of a problem, the question is, are you trusting the Lord really to intervene? Are you praying with confidence, going boldly to the throne of grace? Are you really relying on God? Or are you freaking out, you stressed out, worried, can't sleep, wringing your hands, trying to solve it on your own? And if you're here this morning and you got a mountain of a problem in your life and you're trying to solve it on your own, I know two things about you. You have forgotten two things. You have forgotten who you are and you have forgotten whose you are. If you have turned to Christ, really have turned to Christ. Listen, you're not an orphan. You're a child of God. You're not an orphan. You're a child of God. You belong to the Lord. And the Lord has the power to move mountains. He has the power to intervene and do your problem. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how desperate you are. If you go to God in faith and without doubting in your heart and you give it to him, he will intervene. And he'll move mountains. I've seen it time and time again. But you gotta have faith. And so, stop trying to solve the problem on your own. Remember who you are, a child of God. Remember whose you are. You belong to the king. And it says now, last two verses in verse 24. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I wonder how many people really believe that verse. And by the way, Jesus never intended to be teaching name it and claim it here. You know, I want to be rich, Lord. I want, to, I want the private jet. I want the Ferrari. I want the Porsche. I'm going to name it and claim it. You know, no, 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says that if we pray according to his will, he hears us and he answers us. And, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, what's the word? Forgive. Everybody say forgive. forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that covers it all. Forgive so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. And so if you're here today and you're facing a mountain of a problem, listen, before you go to the Lord 
in faith and ask him to intervene. Examine your heart and see if you have anything against anyone. Any unforgiveness, any bitterness, any grudges going on in your heart this afternoon? And he says, you gotta forgive. Now here's a really good motivation, last point, as the ushers come forward and the worship team comes out. Here's a really good motivation to forgive. Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I know in my life, I look back and there's been people who have said unkind things about me and my family, have attacked me, have offended me, have done some pretty ugly things to me. And you're in a flesh suit as well, and so you know what I'm talking about. And you know how hard it is in your heart to forgive that person. But, but here, here, here's what I know. My fellowship with my heavenly Father is way too important for anything to ever jeopardize that. And so I have 100% before God forgiven all those people. 100%. 100%. Some of you are here today and you're harboring bitterness and anger and unforgiveness in your heart because that person hurt you. And, and the thing is, they don't even know that you're so miserable. They're out having fun. But you're so mad. Can I, can I say that those of you right now who are in a prison of unforgiveness and bitterness, ironically, the key to your cell door is right in your own pocket. You can choose to forgive from your heart. And you can be set free by the Lord. And you say, why should I? Okay, let me just ask you one question. Has God forgiven you? Yes or no? If he's forgiven you, who are you to not forgive others? And you gotta do that, by the way, before you receive these elements.